0: I'd like us to begin this morning by turning back to the book of Psalms, and I want to read part of Psalm 137. Here's an Old Testament situation that has at least a parallel to our present situation here in our country and here in our world for many of God's people, I'm certain, on this Lord's Day. It says by the rivers of babylon there we sat down yea we wept when we remembered zion we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it for there those who carried us away captive required of us a song and those who plundered us required of us mirth saying sing us one of the songs of zion How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. Well, let's look to the Lord in prayer once again and ask for his help as we come to the preaching of his word this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are enabling us in a sense to meet together, though not physically together in one place. We thank you that your people have the ability to use these means to proclaim your word and to hear your word. And so for that, we bless you we are grieved that we are not able to meet together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in one place, but we ask that you would help us to think in a biblical way about the things we hear today and about the things that are going around on around us in the world and the things that we are personally experiencing and in the even uh, more greater inconveniences and suffering that are experienced by those who are not far from us here in northern New Jersey. And Father, we do thank you that, as it was in the case of the Apostle Paul, when he was under house arrest in Rome, that nevertheless he was able to preach the kingdom of God with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And we thank you that although we cannot gather together, no one is forbidding us from preaching and hearing your word. And we thank you as well that when he was imprisoned, he said that he was troubled, suffering trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God was not chained. Father, we thank you for that and ask that you would bless the preaching of the word here from this pulpit this morning and from every mouth and every place where it is proclaimed on this earth on this Lord's day and that you would manifest that the voice of the Lord is powerful and that the voice of the Lord is full of majesty and that it can never be chained. And we ask this in Jesus Christ, your Son's name. Amen. Well, I read the text I read because, as I said, of the similarity between our situation and the situation of the people of God as they were being taken away to Babylon. We don't know the exact circumstances of this particular instance when this psalm was written, but we know that they were not able to meet in God's appointed place, which was the temple in Jerusalem. Perhaps by that moment when they were experiencing this, the temple had already been raised the city of Jerusalem, to its very foundation, as it says in verse 7. But the people were grieved because they were not able to meet together. And they said, it's hard for us to sing, even though our, our captors are demanding that we sing. In that sense, they were being tormented by their captors. We bless God that we are not being tormented here today in that the people who have told us not to meet, they're not mocking us. They're not asking us to do things that are unseemly to us, uh, difficult for us. It should be for all of God's people to be told you cannot meet together with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is our situation today. And it's that situation that I want to address. I'm not going to preach this psalm, although perhaps if uh, this goes on much longer that we have to keep meeting this way, that maybe that'll be a good text that we'll hear from this pulpit But what I want to do today is to begin by giving an explanation basically of why what we're doing what we're doing as Trinity Baptist Church. And what we're doing is simply uh, meeting together online and not physically in our church building. I am in our church building. This isn't just uh, a set that has been produced by our deacons in my study, but this is actually Trinity Baptist Church. And there are only four of us in this huge auditorium. And it's different, and it's difficult. But I want to give an explanation of why we're doing what we're doing. Why are we meeting like this? Different people view the subject of public gatherings at this point in time in our nation in different ways. There are probably two ends of the spectrum. One end is that we should avoid all public gatherings whatsoever. The other end of the spectrum has people on it who say... We don't need to take such drastic measures as this. It's only a virus. We're not all going to die. Both of those groups could say, perhaps, we've got to stop meeting like this. The first group was ready to say that two weeks ago regarding our regular services. We've got to stop meeting like this. We'll infect one another. The second group would say it now. We've got to stop meeting like this, meaning in these virtual meetings, It's not God's will. He says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I want to explain why we first made that decision we did last week to meet in this way rather than our usual way and why we are continuing this week to do that and perhaps will be for the foreseeable future. I'm doing this because though we pastors who have made this decision through much discussion, much thinking, much reading, much listening to what's going on and what is being advised, especially by people in places of authority. We've thought through all that, prayed together, discussed it with one another and come to our conclusion. We want to be sure that we are thinking biblically, not just us pastors, I mean all of us, We don't want to simply be following what the government says without searching the scriptures to see whether these things are right for us. And we need to be sure, all of us do, not just the pastors, the people of God as well, that we are truly obeying God, as scripture says, and not men. So the first point under this explanation is this, and I just have a number of subheadings. The first one is this, we are obeying our authorities and doing what we're doing, we are obeying our authorities. And my first point under that is that we do have obligations to God, our ultimate authority. God is our ultimate authority. Clearly, meeting with God's people on God's day is part of our moral obligation. We believe that the fourth commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, which we believe are God's moral law, they apply to all people at all times in every place in the history of this world till Christ comes again. We believe that that fourth commandment, that we should keep God's day holy, applies to us. And in the Old Testament, when it said that... um, The Sabbath day was, and if you can find this in Leviticus 23, I'm not going to turn to every passage this morning for the sake of time, but there are eight times in Leviticus chapter 23 where it speaks about a Sabbath day, and it says it is a day for solemn rest. So we rest from our labors, but it's solemn rest. It's for a holy purpose, and we have a holy convocation. Well, those two things summarize for us what the Sabbath day is about. It's a day for God, it's holy, it's solemn, and it's a day for rest from our regular labors, but also a holy convocation, coming together as the people of God. That's our moral obligation before God, and that's what he has given us this day for. So we have obligations to God, our ultimate authority, as it says, I alluded to it earlier, Hebrews 10, 25, we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, the writer to the Hebrews says. But also under this point of our having obligations to God, who is our ultimate authority, God nevertheless gives us exceptions to this. And we recognize that on a regular basis as a church when we say, if you are providentially hindered, You you shouldn't feel obliged to come to the house of God. We tell people that who have sickness, either because they're not able to gather or because we don't want them to infect the rest of us. That phenomenon did actually exist before the past month here. Sometimes people are in such a condition, we don't want them breathing on us, coughing on us, sneezing on us, wiping their mouth or face, and then putting out their hand to us, let alone kissing us. That's something that has existed for a long time. Sometimes there are genuine emergencies that require people to be somewhere other than in God's house on the Lord's day. If we want to look at it from a scriptural perspective, certainly persecution can be one of those things that exempts someone from a moral obligation to be with god's people think of paul's lengthy imprisonment in palestine and rome he could preach the gospel but he couldn't gather with christ's church there in rome or think of what we read about in hebrews chapter 13 in verse 4 where we're told to remember those who are imprisoned for the gospel's sake there are some people who are imprisoned right now in this world because they're Christians or they're kept in their house not able to gather with people, those people are not guilty of sin because they aren't gathering with God's people on this Lord's Day or any other Lord's Day. The Bible recognizes that reality. Also, the Bible tells us that sometimes the health and well-being of our fellow men or perhaps our fellow creatures even or at least our property can be a legitimate reason for our not gathering together. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12 and he said I desire mercy and not sacrifice and then he went on to explain how that might even mean mercy for one's animals. In fact, let's look at Mark 3, which is a parallel passage, Mark chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. Here we have this instance in which Jesus was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And it says, And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Then he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. So when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Now, it's interesting that on this occasion, both the Pharisees and Jesus were angry. They were angry with him, and he was angry with them. As we're told in verse 5, he had looked around at them with anger. But certainly only Jesus' anger was righteous anger. And I personally do not have a lot of sympathy for the sentiment that would say, We'd like to contribute to this present effort to save lives, but we can't because we need to do something more important, go to church and gather together with God's people. I do agree with their sentiment that that is a very important thing. Even more important, ultimately, than perhaps saving an individual life. But you see Jesus' point here. He desires mercy and not sacrifice. That idea at this point in time, under our circumstances, sounds too much like the Pharisees to me and not like Jesus. The Pharisees prided themselves that they, and I mean they alone, were concerned about what God was concerned about. That's what they thought. They were concerned about his worship. But Jesus tells them that they were entirely missing what God's program, if you will, his program of salvation was all about. It is about saving people. We are in the midst of an unprecedented situation. I think it is fair to say that such circumstances... What I mean by that is worldwide extreme measures like we are experiencing right now, such circumstances have never been seen before. You might say, well, not on this scale. That is what I'm saying. Not on this scale. There have been plagues. There have been troubles that have been stretched across different nations together but not across the entire world at once. Life did not stop the way it has stopped in a sense now in all the world at the same time. That's what I'm saying. We're not talking about a steady state situation. We're not talking about this going on for the rest of our lives unless we die soon. And we're not talking about persecution of Christians or government outlawing biblical worship because they hate it that's not what we're talking about here so that's my first point is we're obeying our authorities the first one is god whatever we do we need to be certain we're obeying god but then also we have obligations under this heading of we're obeying our authorities to men that is our earthly authorities we do have obligations to them First, let me say, our obligation to our earthly authorities is to submit to them. We know that from Romans chapter 13, the first four verses especially. Again, it's a passage I won't take the time to turn to and read, but most of you are familiar with it, that we are to submit to the powers that be. They are ministers of God. They are here to, do, to commend the good and to punish the evil. In our present situation, it is not, however, just because the civil authorities have told us not to meet that we are not meeting, but that is part of it. And further, this does not simply, what the scripture says about the rulers, it does not simply apply to godly rulers. In other words, you need to submit to your uh, civil authorities if they're godly men or godly women. That's not what the Bible says or that we only submit to the laws that we believe are biblical and or wise. As many have pointed out on this uh, text of Romans 13, it was written when Nero was was emperor, as far as we know, and he was neither a godly man, nor did he govern in a godly, wise way. Turn with me to Jeremiah 27, verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 5 and 6. Speaking of the days of Babylon and ungodly rulers, <clears throat> notice God's words here. And remember that we, when we heard about Jeremiah in our adult class this morning, our Bible class, Remember that one of the big issues there in the book of Jeremiah and in the time of Jeremiah was that God was telling the nation, I'm sending you away to Babylon. You need to submit to that yoke. And the more you do, the better it will go for you. That runs throughout the entire book, comes to a crescendo at the very end when uh, an insubordinate group runs off to Egypt, takes Jeremiah with them, But notice here how God says you need to approach this subject. It was anathema to the Jews to obey this ungodly authority, especially when they were the ones who were exercising, in a sense, they were the instrument of God's wrath upon the nation. So that we even saw in the adult class that Jeremiah himself was complaining about them and praying against them, as if God didn't understand. But God did understand, and here's what he says in Jeremiah Chapter 27, verses 5 and 6, he says, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field, I have also given him To serve him in other words he had a universal reign that was given to him by god that wicked man and god knew it in fact god did it we have to say that about ourselves however we much we like or dislike our current president vice president the people that are advising him our current governor and the people that are advising him this is what we have to reckon with And we need to receive that for what it is, the will of our God. But also under this heading, we have obligations to men, our earthly authorities. A third thing, the reality is still that we must obey God rather than men. That is, if those two are at odds at any point. As the apostle said in Acts 4.19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. It's not a question, but it is completely rhetorical. <clears throat> so I won't answer it. We know the answer. Or again, in Acts, 25, Acts 5, verse 29, the apostle says, we ought to obey God rather than men, as he's speaking to the human authorities that arrested him. They were requiring him to do something that God said he must do. So he couldn't obey the human authority, but he submitted to their rule and whatever punishment they would give sometimes thankfully for us most times you can obey both the civil authority and god and i believe we can at this point in time so that's the first thing that we want to notice we made this decision we're doing what we're doing because we are obeying our authorities both god and men Second, we're doing what we're doing because we are aiming to preserve life and health. I do believe the text that we sent out in our written explanation as to why we're doing was a good text, Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus said he desires mercy and not sacrifice. I think it's an applicable biblical principle in our circumstances. Watch out for the health and well-being of our fellow citizens is what our civil authorities, our public officials, are asking us to do. Now, they are not consciously aiming to follow Jesus' teaching in Matthew 12 when they tell us that. But for us, I believe their recommendation does fit completely with Jesus' teaching in this instance. Let me give you an Old Testament illustration of that. Let's turn in our Bibles to Numbers chapter 13, the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Fourth book of the Bible, Numbers 13, verses 43 to 46. I think we can say on the basis of this passage that, I think I meant Numbers 14. No, that's not what I meant. I need to find one of these that has a verse 46. Maybe it's Leviticus. Isn't Leviticus perhaps the chapter that talked about um, the lepers? Looks like it, yes. So I'm sorry about that. Third book of the Old Testament of the Bible. Leviticus 13, 43 to 46. I think what we see here is that something similar to what we're doing, though it's on a much wider scale, is something that in principle has divine warrant verse 43 of leviticus 13 speaking about the way you treat lepers and the disease of leprosy it says then the priest shall look at it that is uh, the man's place on his body where the disease is manifest then the priest shall look at it And indeed, if the swelling of the sore is reddish white on his bald head or on his bald forehead as the appearance of leprosy on the skin of the body, he is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest shall surely pronounce him unclean. His sore is on his head. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare and he shall cover his mustache and cry unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean, and he shall dwell alone. His habitation shall be outside the camp. Also, if a garment has a, a excuse me, so that's all where I wanted to stop. Verse 46. The point is that we are experiencing something like this, but on a far wider scale. These people were not allowed to be not only at public worship, Whenever the Jews had it as they were traveling through the desert, they weren't even allowed to be inside the camp with the other Jews. This was God saying, for the sake of their illness and for the health and well being of the entire congregation of the Israelites, that had to happen. Those people were not sinning if they stayed away from the assembly. They were sinning, in their case, if they entered the assembly of God's people. And then let's consider in the third place then, having seen first that we must obey our authorities. We're obeying our authorities. Second, we're aiming to preserve life and health. Third, let's consider our church's response in particular. And there should be at least these three things that we're seeking to do first what we're doing is legitimate biblical submission i go back to romans 13 again there are some things that the government could conceivably require us to do as they told the apostles they were not to preach the word of god at which we would have to say no we can't abide by that we must obey god and not men And there are probably many things in your life, or perhaps many things in your life, I know that some of you anyway, there are some things in your life that the government tells you to do and you don't think it's good and wise and frankly, you resent it and you don't think you should have to do it and you might not even think you do have to do it. You might think that, for instance, about driving 25 miles an hour in a school zone when the lights are flashing. And you might say, but the lights are flashing and there's not even a child in sight or even a crossing guard. That doesn't make any sense. I simply remind you of this. You're driving 25 miles an hour in that zone, as the law says at that point, is not causing you to sin. And it's frankly good for everyone because a child might dart out At that moment, not every child gets to school on time and is there when the crossing guards are there. It's legitimate biblical submission, even if you don't like it, and even if you wouldn't do that if you were in the place of the public officials. Second, our church's response should be characterized not only by legitimate biblical submission, it should be characterized by a good testimony One of the texts we discussed a week ago regarding whether we would meet last week when it almost seems impossible that this is true, but seven days ago, only meetings of 250 or more were not even prohibited, but they were not recommended. And we made the judgment then that we would not even meet with a lesser number though that was one of the possibilities that we discussed. And here was our reason. It came from this text, 2 Corinthians 8.21, which had to do with an offering of saints in places like uh, Macedonia and Achaia for the saints back in Jerusalem. And it said this regarding the number of men who would be traveling with the money. It said, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. In other words, they were saying, we know we have honest men here, but we're going to have some from various congregations who contributed to this gift because that's the best accounting practices, if you will, of the day. Those were the best internal controls, if you will, of the day. And that's what they did, and that's why they did it at at no insignificant cost. Those men had to make a long journey just to be there. So it looked good in the sight of men. And we ask the question as elders, what might people of Montville say if we had almost as many cars as almost always we do, on Sunday, uh, uh, March 15th, as we do on any other Lord's Day, wh- what would we going to say? Would we want them to come in this building and complain and say, well, no, but if you go up and do a physical count, there's actually only 220 in the room. Appearances matter, and we didn't want to say to the people around us, when we didn't have to do it, say... We're just under the number. We're going to squeak in and try to do everything we can. You don't like it when your kids do that, right? With the Word of God and say, I want to go as far near the boundary as I can without you being able to say it's sin. And God help us if we ever take that attitude. And a third thing we want our response to manifest is not only legitimate biblical submission and a good testimony, but third, solidarity with our fellow men. Solidarity with our fellow men. Turn with me to Titus 3, verses 1 through 3. Here the Apostle Paul is giving some directions to the church in the island of Crete. He's giving it to them through Titus. who's the gospel minister at that time there on Crete. And Paul says remind them to be subject <clears throat> to rulers and authorities to obey to be ready for every good work. Now that applies to what I just said, the first two points, but now this. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. In other words, look at those people that I'm trying to tell you to have a good testimony among and remember this, you're, you're one of them. You're redeemed ones of them, but you're one of them. Not just in that some of them actually have the same blood and genes you do because they're family members, but they have the same spiritual lineage as you sons of adam don't forget that don't you know jesus statement was true that here are my mother and my brothers those who hear the word of god and do it um water in terms of the washing of the spirit is thicker than blood in that sense but that's not the only truth The rest of the truth is remember the rock from which you were hewn, if we could put it that way. Look at the people around you and identify yourself with them. You're part of them. That's what God said that the Israelites should do, even in the most difficult of circumstances, as they were being taken away by their captors to a foreign land, an idolatrous land, with an idolatrous wicked king and they were going to become part of that society and God didn't say, don't identify with them at all in terms of their idolatrous idolatrous practices. They must not identify with them. But in terms of being part of the same society, the same segment of humanity, they were absolutely to identify with them. Listen to Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Isn't that how Joseph conducted himself in Egypt? Wasn't he, in many ways, an Egyptian among Egyptians? And isn't that the way Daniel conducted himself for so many decades in Babylon? He was such a useful and loyal servant to his king. And he was a good example for us I really thought the statement that Pastor Hoffmeier read last week of Martin Luther was really excellent. Written at a time when in his part of the world, in Germany, they were facing plague. Situation very similar to ours. And Luther said this, I'll repeat what he read last week. Luther said, very well, by God's decree, the enemy has sent a pestilence for my part, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall administer medicine and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others. If people in a city were to show themselves bold in faith when a neighbor's need so demands and cautious When no emergency exists, in other words, you have the people on both ends of the spectrum acting the way they feel like they should, and if everyone would help ward off contagion as best he can, then the death toll would indeed be moderate no okay so we, he's saying there you should be bold in faith when the situation a neighbor's need demands it but if there's no emergency that exists to go somewhere then be cautious stay home so he's saying do what we're doing right now but now he addresses the people at the ends of the spectrum letting their emotions control them he says but if some are too panicky and desert their neighbors in their plight And if some are so foolish as to not take precautions but aggravate the contagion, then the devil has a heyday and many will die. Let me just take some of uh, the, the things we can glean from Luther's statement here. The first is, of course, that we are to trust God and we are to pray. He says, I will ask God mercifully to protect us. He knew that we're all in God's hands. And he, therefore, was going to first and foremost give himself to prayer. Brethren, at this hour, you should all believe that your prayers do accomplish as much as anything that anyone, any mere human can do at this time. Do you believe that? I hope you believe that. If you believe what the Bible says about prayer, you do believe it. Carry on your life as though you believe that. Every time you think about the plight of your neighbor, every time you think about how terrible this pestilence is, fire up a prayer to God about it. Nothing hinders you. So trust God and pray. Another thing that you see in Luther is follow the golden rule. I mean, he was basically saying if he were living here, I'm going to do what I'm asked, short of sinning for the good of my neighbor's health. If the good of my neighbor's health and the good of his soul requires me as a pastor to go to my neighbor's house, I'll go. I'm not afraid. But short of that, he's saying I'll stay away from my neighbor for the sake of his health, for my neighbor's health, or my neighbor's elderly mother's health, or his elderly father's health. And I may not even know them. You may not be afraid to die. I'm not afraid to die so you're not afraid wonderful but we're not doing what we're doing as a society for you we're doing it for our friends and neighbors many of whom are not ready to die and we're doing it for our medical workers and hospitals who are woefully unprepared to deal with huge numbers of patients who come down seriously ill all at the same time we are not prepared for it unless everybody is lying to us and i don't think they are we're seeing in italy happen what could happen here it was very sad to read this week an article about what is happening happening in one town in italy which was kind of the uh, epicenter of what has happened there To read about the accounts of hospital workers telling about many many people dying alone in hospitals they're not used to seeing people die at this present rate in those hospitals but people who work in hospitals and in icu stations they are used to seeing people die But what they're used to seeing is people die with friends and relatives and ministers of the gospel around them. And they're seeing people die by themselves. And it breaks their hearts. This is what we're trying to avoid, God helping us. So we should follow the golden rule and do unto others as you would have them do to you. And then third, we should have no fear. We shouldn't luther was accused of being many things but among those many things some of which were legitimate were not his being cowardly or unbelieving as god's people we have no reason to fear fourth we can learn from what luther said and from his example that we should take precautions and we should utilize means luther said he would give medicine if he could and he said if he could he would take it if he had a need for it Here, we don't have any medicine for coronavirus, COVID-19. We don't have it. People are feverishly trying to find it. We have social distancing. And at least I hope you can learn from this, social distancing is not new. And it's not just the product of 20th century uh, progressive mentality. 21st century luther said this i'll repeat it i shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others i think that's a good attitude and then fifth we learn from what luther said we should avoid extremes in other words if you're on that extreme that you think is so commendable because you have no fear He says that would give place to the devil for you to just take no precautions. And if you're on that extreme that says these people don't get how uh, virile this virus is, if that's a fair thing to say, how how strong it is, how contagious it is, how dangerous it is, and you are going to be the person who takes every last possible precaution to the point that you won't help someone in need, you are giving place to the devil. God, keep us from those extremes. Brethren, let's just remember before I go on from this point about why we're doing what we're doing. We have canceled services many times for what we could call the providence of God. whether we do that a lot. When we do, inevitably, one of the uh, my fellow elders will say, as we're going back and forth whether we should do this, he'll say, "Well, we don't want to put our elderly members at risk." And often that's the thing that ends the discussion, and we decide to cancel services sometimes we feel sad when the next day the sun comes up and all the there's just water on the streets and not ice and we say well we could have been at the house of god but we don't have a bad conscience because we did what we believed was right in light of what we knew we had a good conscience about it remember avoiding contact with people isn't simply or even mainly done so you won't get sick it's so we won't spread this virus to others by being careless it's to help keep hospital beds and equipment and nurses and doctors available for those who do fall sick for those who need them and who need them now and in the days ahead conceivably by being careful about what you do as we're being directed you will be contributing to the sa- to, to the saving of lives of elderly people mainly in your own family but also the lives of people that you will never meet that's the goal remember social distancing is not just an individual approach it's a societal program i, I thought of the kids picking up gum wrappers for part of the World War II effort back in the the 40s. And someone might say to a kid picking up a gum wrapper and peeling off the aluminum or whatever it was that he was peeling off to go put in the donation box somewhere, they might say to that little boy, that's not going to defeat Germany, what you're doing there right now. That's right, it's not. But because hundreds of people and thousands of people were doing it, it did contribute to the defeat of germany and brethren just one other note before i go to the next thing we can take encouragement and be thankful about what we're seeing right now for a couple of reasons when we hear uh these this advice to stay home and all that stuff and we want to do this we want to protect our elderly we want to protect the weak etc we can be thankful to god that certain ungodly philosophies that are prevalent in our day and age are not being consistently followed first the um um the big time push for national health care everywhere and if you're not doing it that way then you're doing something wrong you know what goes along with that the idea that the government will decide who lives and who doesn't live And the notion that the elderly are expendable. We can thank God right now that what our government is telling us is that we are implementing this strategy especially to save the elderly, the weak, and the infirm. I thank God for that. And another thing we can thank it for is that we don't thank God for is that we don't see the evolutionary mentality being consistently played out in other words, that we should just let the weak die. This is a naturally occurring virus and we can just let the weak die. Let natural selection play itself out, survival of the fittest. I thank God that's not the note that is being sounded publicly and by those who are in places of authority. So there's an explanation of why we're doing what we're doing